Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 10, verses 1 through 22. Ezekiel says, Then I looked, and behold, on the expanse that was over the heads of the cherubim, there appeared above them something like a sapphire, an appearance like a throne. And he said to the man clothed in linen, Go in among the whirling wheels underneath the cherubim, fill your hands with burning coals from between the cherubim, and scatter them over the city. And he went in before my eyes. Now the cherubim were standing on the south side of the house when the man went in, and a cloud filled the inner court. And the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub to the threshold of the house, and the house was filled with the cloud, and the court was filled with the brightness of the glory of the Lord. And the sound of the wings of the cherubim was heard as far as the outer court, like the voice of God Almighty when he speaks. And when he commanded the man clothed in linen, take fire from between the whirling wheels, from between the cherubim, he went in and stood beside a wheel. And a cherub stretched out his hand from between the cherubim to the fire that was between the cherubim, and took some of it and put it in the hands of the man clothed in linen, who took it and went out. The cherubim appeared to have the form of a human hand under their wings. And I looked, and behold, there were four wheels beside the cherubim, one beside each cherub, and the appearance of the wheels was like sparkling barrel. And as for their appearance, the four had the same likeness as if a wheel were within a wheel. When, when they went, they went in any of their four directions without turning as they went, but in whatever direction the front wheel faced, the others followed without turning as they went. And their whole body, their rims and their spokes, their wings and the wheels were full of eyes all around. The wheels that the four of them had, as for the wheels, they were called in my hearing the whirling wheels. And every one had four faces. The first face was the face of the cherub, and the second face was a human face, and the third the face of a lion, and the fourth the face of an eagle. And the cherubim mounted up. These were the living creatures that I saw by the Kebar Canal. And when the cherubim went, the wheels went beside them. And when the cherubim lifted up their wings to mount up from the earth, the wheels did not turn from beside them. When they stood still, these stood still. And when they mounted up, these mounted up with them. For the spirit of the living creatures was in them. And then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim. And the cherubim lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth before my eyes as they went out with the wheels beside them. And they stood at the entrance of the east gate of the house of the Lord. And the glory of the God of Israel was over them. These were the living creatures that I saw underneath the God of Israel by the Kebar Canal. And I knew that they were a cherubim. Each had four faces and each four wings. And underneath their wings was the likeness of human hands. And as for the likeness of their faces, they were the same faces whose appearance I had seen by the Kebar Canal. Each one of them went straight forward. Now, as I told you before we started our recording, we will not stay too long in chapter 10 because much of what's here and what I just read to you, actually we've already covered in previous studies. I don't know if you've kind of noticed, a lot of what we read tonight was things that we had in previous studies gone to chapter 10 and looked at that for corroboration of other things we were looking at. For example, some of the things that we've already covered that's in chapter 10 are the fact that the Spirit of God in His glory leaving the temple, which we looked at already last week. Of the fact that the cherubim are the mode of transportation for God's glory. We see the glory of God came to rest over the cherubim and then he left as they left. Also, we've already studied the appearance of the cherubim with their four faces, one like a lion and an ox and a man and an eagle and so on. We've already covered all of that. Because as you saw, as he said over and over through our study, these are the same cherubim that I saw at the Kebar Canal. Remember back in chapter 1 when he was getting his vision of God and God revealed himself to him there when he was in Babylon and he called him to be his prophet he saw the cherubim and all these things. And so that's why we've already covered most of this. And also the whirling wheels, we've covered the wheels as well. So before we jump into chapter 11, there's one last thing, though, I want to pull out of chapter 10 here, though, that we haven't really covered. And I can't wait to show it to you because it's a very interesting study. I want to take a look at the coals of fire that are at the feet of the cherubim. We've mentioned them in the past. And if you remember from our study earlier, a lot of, a lot of weeks ago, when we looked at how in Ezekiel 28, um, Satan used to be a guardian cherub and how God said, you walked among the coals of fire and how he used to be one of these ones who had the coals of fire at his feet. But remember last week, the man clothed in linen had been given a task last week. What was it? Very good. To mark the heads of the foreheads of the ones who were in Israel who were grieved over the sin. He was to go mark them so they'd be protected from the judgment and the destruction that was going to come. But now the same man clothed in linen, at the end of chapter 9, he's come to God and said, I've done everything you commanded me to do. By the way, that's where one of the reasons why I lean toward this isn't Jesus. 
Because the Bible actually tells us in Hebrews that when Jesus took on flesh, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Or here, this person's already learning obedience, has already learned obedience. I've done everything you commanded me to do. A lot of times we want to make everybody Jesus in the Old Testament when we see things like this. I don't think that is Jesus here. It's a very important angel, this man clothed in linen. But now this man clothed in linen is told to go in among the coals of fire at the feet of the cherubim. And then he was to hold out his hands and the cherub, one of the cherubim take, took uh, his hand underneath his wing, scooped up some coals, put it in his hands, and he was to do what with that coal, with those coals? Scatter them over the city. Picture of judgment. Would you not agree? As we see the same thing in the book of Revelation from our study where they threw fire down. And of course, we see it in Sodom and Gomorrah. They rained, God rained down fire and brimstone in the city. Some of you may already know this, but maybe some of you don't. Interestingly enough, in 586 B.C., at the end of the destruction of Jerusalem, remember the siege had been going on for two years from 588 to 586. At the end of the siege, Jerusalem was burned. Go with me to 2 Kings. I want you to see this. 2 Kings chapter 25. And pay close attention to what we read here because you're going to see the importance of it later on in our study. 2 Kings chapter 25. Here's the account of what happens in chapter 25, verses 1 through 9. It says, In the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, the tenth day of the month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came with all his army against Jerusalem and laid siege to it. By the way, this is the ninth year of the reign of Zedekiah, not Nebuchadnezzar. And laid siege to it. And they built siege works all around it. And so the city was besieged till the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. On the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. We've already done that study, how Ezekiel prophesied there wouldn't be any food. And then a breach was made in the city, and all the men of war fled by night by the way of the gate between the two walls by the king's garden. And the Chaldeans were around the city, and they went in the direction of the Arabah. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho, and all his army was scattered from him. Then they captured the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah, and they passed sentence on him, and they slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes, and put out the eyes of Zedekiah, and bound him in chains, and took him to Babylon. In the fifth month, on the seventh day of the month, this was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the bodyguard, or servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. And he burned the house of the Lord and the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every great house he burned down. So it's no small thing to see that God tells this man clothed in linen, grab some coals from the fire at the feet of the cherubim and scatter them over the city. When the judgment finally took, took place, the city was burned. But I want to look at these coals of fire from two aspects tonight. I want to take a look at it from the aspect of the judgment of God for destruction, but also I want to look at it from the aspect of the judgment of God for purifying. I want you to see that these same coals that God uses to judge the wicked, God uses coals as well to judge and purify the righteous. And that's what I want us to look at tonight. You see, we see these that these uh, coals of fire are mainly being used for destruction and judgment because of Israel's sin. But we have to remember that some of these people of the city were previously marked with a seal protecting them from the destruction when the judgment came, right? So were they able to just sit there in the city while, every, while the rest of it was burned and they weren't touched? No, those same coals of fire affected the people who had been marked for protection. They, were, they weren't killed, but they were carried off. They lost their houses. They probably had some of those houses that were burned. And they were carried off into, into um, captivity in Babylon. And that same fire that judged the unrighteous had an effect on the righteous. And that's where I want to go tonight. I want to show you from Scripture that these same coals would serve a, as a purifying purpose in their lives. And now here's what I want to do. Let me just take some time to explain what I mean by this. Go to Isaiah chapter 6. As you're turning there, let me just kind of lay this out for you, and hopefully we can explain it to you from Scripture. When God judges the world, and when God brings judgment on the nations, and maybe even this nation, will it have an effect on us as well who are in Christ? Yes. But God will use those same coals that he's going to use to judge the nation to 
purify his people. Let me show you what I mean. Go to Isaiah chapter 6. Look at verses 1 through 7. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. And with two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth, and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Here, coals from the altar of incense are used to cleanse Isaiah and purify him for God's purpose for him. God used coals from underneath the cherubim for destruction and coals here at the altar to purify Isaiah. Now, some would say, well, the difference is, is the coals at the base of the cherubim, those are the ones for destruction, and the coals at the altar, those are for purifying. I don't think there's a whole lot of difference in that way. But there is a difference. Why are the coals used in some people's lives for destruction, yet that same coals used somebody else's life for purification? Any idea what the difference is? Yes, but I want to go a little deeper than that. Okay? I'm sorry? Obedience, close. Those are good words. They're not the best words. Condition of the heart. Repentance. You see, as you're going to see, God desires to give mercy to everyone. And we're all deserving of judgment, correct? But God desires to give mercy. And so, as we've already been seeing, God has been warning them and warning them and warning them, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to judge you, I'm going to judge you, I'm going to judge you. Why does he keep saying it? Why doesn't he just do it? Well, because that same judgment that he's going to use to bring destruction on the ungodly, he's hoping that their attitude will be of repentance so that that same judgment now can be used to purify them. As he brings judgment on the nation, they will be purified in the process. Folks, don't lose sight of this. We don't see Isaiah go, ah, but it couldn't have felt good to have coals touch your lips. I mean, the angels using tongs. That should give you an idea that it hurt. And let's be honest. When God disciplines us, does it always feel good? Actually, never feels good at the time. And we're going to see some scripture that talks about that tonight. Go to Matthew chapter 9. You see, Isaiah, as you're turning to Matthew 9, Isaiah is grieved over his sin. And the coal cleanses him. The fire still touched him, but it didn't destroy him. The people of Jerusalem who were grieved over the sin of the city were marked with a seal. But the judgment of Jerusalem still touched them, but they weren't destroyed. They were purified in the process. Can anybody give me an example of someone that we know from our study who the judgment on Israel affected them and they were purified in their captivity? Daniel? In our study right here in Ezekiel. Ezekiel. Thank you. I was going to say it. His name's Ezekiel. You remember, he was one of the captives taken captive during one of the raids. He's one of 10,000. He was taken into captivity. And during that time in captivity, what happens? That same judgment that's coming on the nation because of their sin is used in Ezekiel's life to bring him to a deeper understanding of who God is. Yeah, the fire hit him, but it didn't destroy him. The judgment of God did affect Ezekiel as well. But it brought him closer to God. In Matthew chapter 9, look at verses 9 through 13. Jesus is, meets Matthew the tax collector and says, As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at a table in the house... Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when, they heard, when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. 
as Jesus was eating in the house with all these sinners, the Pharisees were like, why is your master eating with sinners? And Jesus says, let me tell you something. Um, the ones who need the doctor are the sick ones, not the healthy ones. And go back to Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. And let me remind you, because in Hosea 6, 6, that's where Jesus quotes from. He says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. He goes, go and learn what this means. He said, because I came to call not the righteous, but sinners. Does anybody understand what Jesus was saying here? Because if you remember back at the Sermon on the Mount, he started off by saying, blessed are those who are poor in what? In spirit. In other words, spiritually bankrupt. Who is that? Everyone. Blessed are those who realize they're spiritually bankrupt. See, there's no one righteous, not even one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one seeks God on their own. The world is spiritually bankrupt apart from God giving them righteousness. Blessed are those who realize they're sick. I know I've known people over the years as a pastor, they would say to me, well, I won't go to the doctor because when you go to the doctor, they tell you you got problems. So if I don't go to the doctor, I don't have problems. You ever had, you ever run into those kind of people? And they tend to die. You know, the whole world is in need of God's righteousness, cleansing. Blessed are those who realize it. And God is going to judge those who say they don't need it. But in that process of judging the world, his judgment does affect the righteous. Did it not affect Lot and his family? He said, if there are Five righteous, sorry, ten righteous, I won't judge the city. What happens? He still judged the city. There were righteous there. The Bible says in the book of Peter, Lot was righteous, declared righteous by God. And it affected him and his family when God judged the nation. And so I want you to understand, to not receive the destruction of God's fire, we need to see our sin as holy God sees it. So I want to just kind of show you just a few examples from Scripture of what I'm talking about. Go to Job Chapter 42. Kind of just remind you briefly about the book of Job. Even though he started off real good and didn't charge God with wrongdoing, as the book continues, Job starts to fuss a little bit. He actually curses the day he was born. Actually, this is how he words it. He said, I wish there were never knees to receive me. Interesting word picture. Wish I'd never been born. He says it's actually better for a tree than it is for a man. You cut a tree down and at least some shoots will come back up. What hope is there for man? And all the way through, he kept saying, I'm righteous, I'm righteous, I'm righteous. And then he said, and I would love to talk with God face to face, but what good is that? He won't have that conversation with me. And then God does. God shows up. And for four chapters, he talks to Job. And in chapter 42, look at verses Five through six. Job says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Now, hear me carefully because I don't want to presume that I know why Job's children died. Because I don't know it because the scripture doesn't say. And we've got to be real careful that we don't become Job's friends and say, well, this is why God's doing it. But there's a possibility that they were judged because of sin. But in their being judged for sin, did that also affect Job? But God's purposes were for purification. Job says, I spoke about things I didn't understand. Now that I've seen you, I repent in dust and ashes. The same guy that's been saying, I'm righteous, I'm righteous, I'm righteous, now said, I'm not. Go to Luke chapter 5. As we're turning to Luke 5, Jesus is speaking to a crowd, and he borrows Peter's boat. Peter's a fisherman at the time, and he borrows Peter's boat, and he stands in the boat, and the boat goes off onto the water a little bit just offshore, and Jesus teaches from there. Now, if you know anything about acoustics, Jesus, being the one who created the world, knew a lot about acoustics, 
my wife's parents live on a lake outside of Gainesville. And if you're out there on that lake in a boat, all you have to do is just speak toward the house and your voice just carries right across the water all the way up to the house. It's an amazing thing. You could be almost a half a mile out and just go, hey, from the boat, and they'll hear you at the house because it just resonates. Jesus, knowing that, stood in his boat as it went offshore a little bit, and he just spoke to the crowds all there on the shore, and the water worked like a microphone. And then he turns to Peter, and he says, when he's done preaching, he said, let's take the boat out deeper to the deep water, and let's throw out the nets for a catch. Peter says, hey, you know, I know stuff you don't know. We fished all night and haven't caught anything, but I'll humor you because you said so. I'll do it. And what happens? They throw the nets out, and there's so many fish come into those nets that they can't pull them in. The friends have to come help them pull them in. Look at verse 8. Look at Peter's response in Luke 5, verse 8. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' feet and knees, saying, Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. When he got a deeper understanding of who Jesus was, he realized his sinfulness. Go to Revelation chapter 1. As you're turning to Revelation chapter 1, we're going to look at verses 17 and 18. Let me remind you that this person we're about to read about is the one by the name of John, the one who described himself all through his book as the one whom Jesus loved, the one who leaned on Jesus' breast at the Lord's Supper, the one who had seen Jesus' glory as he shone, his glory shone through the Mount Transfiguration, the one who had actually watched Jesus raise Jairus' daughter when the other disciples didn't get to see it except Peter and James and John. And at the same time, this is the same John that went further in the garden to pray with Jesus that night right before the cross. If there was anybody that knew Jesus, this is the guy. In Revelation chapter 1, verses 17 and 18, as you know, Jesus visits him on that island there that he's exiled to. And John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death in Hades. What was John's reaction when he saw more of who God was? Humility, repentance. One more place. Go to Ezekiel. Chapter 1. I think one more might be a bad term. Another place. Because we're going to look at many more tonight. Go to Ezekiel chapter 1. Look at verses 26 through 28. This is where Ezekiel in chapter 10 is referencing him seeing God above the cherubim at the Kebar Canal. And in chapter 1, this is what's happening. And in verse chapter 1, verses 26 through 28... Ezekiel says, and above the expanse over the heads of the cherubim, there was the likeness of a throne. In appearance like sapphire and seated above the likeness of a throne was the likeness of a human appearance with a human appearance. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw as it were gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw as it were the appearance of fire. And there was brightness around him. Like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord, and when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard the voice of one speaking. Again, Ezekiel, when he sees God, he falls down in repentance. I'm going somewhere with this. Because as you're going to see, as we continue to look at some more scriptures tonight, as I have been doing this study of Ezekiel, and as you've already heard me say, you can't do a study of Ezekiel without looking at Jeremiah and also some of Isaiah because their messages were all at the same time overlapping to the people of Israel. And what God was saying through one, he was saying through all of them together. As we have been doing this, and I have been kind of prayerfully looking at what we're going to cover each week and where we're going to be possibly next week and so on, the one thing that I keep hearing God tell me to tell you is this. A judgment is coming on our nation. And as God brings the judgment on our nation, it's going to affect us as well. But that same coals that he's going to use for destruction on those who do not respond appropriately, he desires to use those same judgments to purify his people. To understand that God is doing something, not only in the world, but in the United States. And he's going to use that same thing to do something in our lives during the process. Go to James chapter 4. 
This was written to the church. And you're going to see very clearly, James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10, you can't deny that it was written to believers because he's going to talk about the Spirit of God that's within us. That's only possible if someone's born again. But listen closely to what God says through James to the church. In James chapter 4, he says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you don't have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And then you ask and you don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. These are some serious words written to the church. He says, hey... God's not done with you yet. And I want to make something very clear before I go any further in our study. When we talk to believers, when we talk to those who are in Christ, if you are in Christ and Christ is in you, you have been sealed by the Spirit of God and you will not be destroyed. You will be going to eternity with God. But listen, you also need to keep in mind that you are already righteous because of Jesus Christ. The Bible, in the Bible term of justification, it's a legal decree in which God pretty much just takes a stamp and declares you righteous. Remember, the righteousness of Christ has been given to us. He became sin who knew no sin. Well, how did he become sin? God took mankind's sin and put it on Jesus. That we might become the righteousness of who? Of Christ. Well, let me ask you. If we're not righteous and there's no one righteous, how do we become righteous? He takes Jesus' righteous and puts it on us. We are righteous because of the fact that we have been saved through faith in Jesus Christ. You have been declared righteous, but now don't miss this. The Bible calls salvation, well, when the Bible talks about salvation, it's talking about all three parts. There's justification, and then there's ultimately the glorification. But what's the middle part that we're in right now? sanctification, and that is a purifying. Even though we have been declared righteous, and even though one day we're going to experience that wonderful glorification where he won't be working on us anymore, it will be accomplished. We're in the process, even though we're righteous, and we're going to be finally finished being saved. And then the Bible says that you've been saved, we're being saved, and one day we'll receive salvation. When the Bible talks about salvation, it's understanding all parts. But you've got to understand, we are all right now in that middle part called sanctification where God is purifying for himself a people zealous to do good works. And what does God use to purify his people? Fire. Didn't Jesus or John the Baptist say about Jesus? After me comes one who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. What is fire's purpose? Purifying or what? Or destruction. You see, fire was used to make the gold pure, the silver pure. As you heated it, the dross would float to the surface and you'd scrape it off. And the fire was used to purify. But at the same time, fire could also be used to destroy, as the Bible is going to show us tonight. And so don't lose sight of the fact that as we keep looking about, well, God's going to judge the United States. Yes. And the judgment's already begun. Part of the judgment is he's removed his hand of blessing from us as a nation. The fact that us, as a nation we've gone over to homosexuality and the fact that states are saying it's okay for them to be married and our Supreme Court has said it's okay to be married. The Bible says in the book of Romans chapter 1 that he gives them over to their shameful lust, men with men, women with women. That means that God's already given us as a nation over. The judgment's going to continue. But as the judgment comes, don't think, well, that judgment's on the world. No, you're about to see from Scripture 
That same judgment that he's using on the world, he's also going to use on us for the purposes of bringing us closer to him and getting rid of the stuff that shouldn't be there because we're still in that process of him making us into what he wants us to be. That glorified state, you don't just get there. It starts at the justification. He purifies us until the glorification. So go with me to John chapter 15. I'm going to read to you some passages of Scripture that are very familiar, but we don't like them. So we need to hear them. John chapter 15, look at verses 1 through 17. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser or the gardener. Every branch in me that doesn't bear fruit, he takes away. Some translations I like better are picks up. And every branch that does, that does bear fruit, he what? He prunes it so that it'll bear more fruit. Now, I'm going to stop for a second. I'm going to keep reading in just a little bit. Anybody here, gardeners, anybody here like to work with plants and stuff like that? What's the purpose of pruning? So it'll grow bigger and produce more flowers, fruit, whatever. By the way, what is pruning for those in the room that don't know? You, you cut it way back, don't you? You see, we, we had an orange tree until Matthew, Hurricane Matthew, and I took our orange tree this year. But years ago, I bought it for Becky. I don't remember if it was for Mother's Day or just one of those many, I'm a great guy, look what I did for you gifts. But it fit in the trunk of my little Honda. And we planted it in our backyard, and we're not horticulture people. We, we just do the best we can, and we just kind of planted it and prayed and I haven't fertilized it much, but one thing I did learn was that every year after the crop, I would prune it back. It was hard for me because it would get so beautiful, but I would do the hard work of cutting it back. And do you realize that one little tree that was fitting in the trunk of my car grew so big that even with a stepladder, I couldn't reach the top of it? And last Christmas, it produced 250 oranges, just one tree. But I had to do the hard thing of pruning it. Jesus says, anybody in me that's bearing fruit, I'm going to prune you. See, one of the sad things as a pastor that I've dealt with over the years is Christians saying, why is Christian life so hard? Why, is God, why doesn't God make it easier? No, he said his yoke, the, the work that he's called for you, the gifting he's given you will be easy. The thing that he's called you to do, the preaching and teaching is not hard work for me. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. But he's also said, in this world, you're going to have trouble. Every day there's going to be trouble. You're going to see scripture in just a little bit that's going to show us that the scripture said all along, for his sake, we're given over as sheep to be slaughtered. Don't get the two confused. What he's gifted you to do and called you to do will be easy because his yoke is easy. His burden is light. But... Life itself, as a believer, is a process of suffering. It says in the book of Hebrews, I already referenced it earlier tonight, Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. Folks, I want you to hear this. Stop getting fooled into the thinking that life's supposed to be where there's no problems. God actually, that's his greatest tool for pruning and shaping and trials. Every branch in me that does produce fruit, he prunes it so it'll bear more fruit. You're going to see that fruit thing come up a lot here. He says, already you're clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. You're justified. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. And I'm the vine and you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. There it is again. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, if anyone doesn't abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it'll be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. Does he keep saying that or what? So to prove to be my disciples, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I've kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. 
No longer do I call you servants, for the servant doesn't know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends for all that I've heard from my father I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and what? Bear fruit, and that your fruit should remain. So if he chose us to bear fruit, what's the way that he's designed to bear fruit? Suffering. Suffering. There's one thing we're all trying to avoid. Churches are trying to design their paperwork so that if we make all the rules a certain way, there'll be no problems. No, I'm going to use problems to purify you. I'm going to use problems to accomplish my purpose. I'm going to say to you, count it joy when you face trials because that's going to produce what I want to produce in you. No trials won't be produced. No trials, no fruit. So the same fire that God's going to use to judge the United States that has already begun is also at the same time being used of God to purify his people. It's all good. We should, in a weird way, be glad it's happening. I know it sounds crazy. Go to Hebrews chapter 12. James said so. Go to Hebrews chapter 12. Look at verses 1. And following, by the way, at the end of chapter 11, he's just finished listing what we call the Hall of Fame of Faith, men and women who by faith, by the way, um, were sawn in two, killed by the sword, wanders in deserts and caves. The world was not worthy of them. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, Looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured what? Suffering, the cross, despising the shame, and it's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you haven't even yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Did, did anybody let that sink in for a minute? What he says to him is, you bunch of whiners... You're complaining because people aren't inviting you to parties anymore because you're a follower of Jesus and you used to be a Jew and you used to be in with the in crowd. Now that you're walking with Christ, you're suffering persecution. You didn't get the job. You haven't even shed your blood yet. I remember hearing a story years ago about this young preacher who was having it really rough in his church and he went to this old preacher and he said, what do I do? They're really being mean to me. The old preacher says, have they hit you? No, they haven't hit me. Have they spit on you? Oh, no, no one spit on me. Have they pulled your beard? No. He goes, then you're not done. Because if your master had those things happen to him, why should you think they won't do it to you? Keep reading. And you've forgotten the exhortation. Some of your translations say encouragement that addresses you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. And he chastises every son whom he receives. It's for discipline, shaping, molding, teaching that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. In other words, I don't beat other people's kids. I've thought about it, but they're not mine to raise. I spank my own. You understand? Same way. If God's not disciplining you, you ain't his. That's what it's saying, clear and simple. For they, well, back up, verse 9. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they, the earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he, God, disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. 
By the way, when Paul says, I wish you guys would understand the height, the width, the depth, the breadth of the love of God, when he pretty much said, I'm tasting something that you guys, I wish you could taste, where was he sitting? In prison. Oh, by the way, from the moment that he gets saved, God told the guy that was going to heal him of his blindness, I'll show him how much he must suffer for my name. This won't fill churches, by the way, this kind of preaching. Go to 1 Peter chapter 4. There's lots of churches out there will tell you the exact opposite of this. They're full. 1 Peter chapter 4, look at verses 1 through 19. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Stop. Put that in your own words. Since Jesus suffered in the flesh, arm yourself with the same way of thinking. What's he, what did he just say? Yeah, in other words, yeah. <laughs> Expect the same thing to happen to you. Since Jesus suffered physically, don't be surprised if it happens to you. Expect it. For whoever, this is hard for many of us, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Isn't that what God said through James? You have all these passions within you still, Christians, and they war against your spirit. Let me just tell you something, folks. You walk through a long journey of suffering in the flesh, all that stuff that used to be those passions, they're going to go away because you're going to grow in that process and you walk with the Lord or you'll understand what it means to have what he's produced through the trials come evident in your life. Jim, is it way for the Christian to know a godly suffering versus a sinful suffering? Yes, actually, he talks about that here. We're going to get to that in just a second. He actually talks about it in this passage. Let me say this real quick before we get to that, though, John. I knew of a, a couple in church when I pastored in Chicago who the man, uh, by God's design, he ended up with melanoma. And not only did he end up with melanoma, the man literally threw up every day for almost three years because of the treatment. And when the three years was over, I went and visited them. And I sat down in the living room with them. And I said to them both, husband and wife, I said, let me ask you a question. If you had to choose, we would go back three years earlier, and you had to choose no cancer, but you miss out on all that God did through these three years, or cancer and go through what you did again, what would you choose? You get, you get what God did. They said, without even thinking about it, they said, give us the cancer right now. He said, I have no human desire to go through what we went through in these past three years, but what God did in our marriage, what God did in our walk with him, so supersedes the cancer. I wouldn't want to lose what he's done. And I, I could see it. That's why I knew the answer to the question. I just want to hear him say it. Keep reading. Verse 3. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they're surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand, folks. Therefore, be self-controlled and be sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling, and as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God provides or supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But don't let any of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. Did you catch that? Time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, 
What will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will they become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Along your question, John, whenever suffering comes, there's nothing wrong with us to do a sin checklist to say, Lord, is this because of things? But once he's shown you that it's not, okay, then you've got a reason for it. And actually, most of us, when the suffering comes because of sin, we know it already. We don't even have to ask because God doesn't bring suffering right away. He's a loving father that says, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. Eventually, you'll have to do that. You understand? So by the time, if you're suffering because of sin, you already know. You already know the difference. Now, I want you to take out a piece of pen and a paper, and I want you to write down some scriptures. I don't have time tonight to read them, but I really want you to go ahead and take a look at them, because you're going to see the same fire that he's been talking about to try us and to purify us is going to be used to judge the whole world. Don't lose the fact, the sight of the fact that this uh, judgment is coming, and this fire of judgment is coming on the whole world who rejects Christ. Write down Hebrews 12, 25 through 29 talks about how God's going to judge the wicked and he's a consuming fire. That's Hebrews 12, 25 through 29. Also, 2 Peter 3, 1 through 13, that whole section, Peter talks about, about how uh, God saved the world because of its sin and deluged it with water. And this same world now is reserved for fire. Actually, he goes on in that passage to talk about how God, when he spoke the first time on the earth there at Mount Sinai, shook the earth when he spoke but he's now going to shake not only the earth, but the heavens. I mean, when God brings this judgment, he's going to shake the sky and the stars. And oh, by the way, if the heat that the Bible says that is coming in that judgment is going to melt the stars and melt the moon and melt all the universe, I think it's going to get pretty hot here in that judgment, don't you think? Interestingly enough, though, Peter uses this picture when he talks about he will shake the universe, so that what is unshakable will be the only thing that remains. In other words, you ladies, when you take your uh, blanket out or your, your, your welcome mat or something you want to clean, you go out and you shake it or you bang it. You're getting rid of all the stuff you don't want in it, and the only thing left is what you want. Listen closely. The Bible says that when God brings the final judgment on the world, he is going to shake the universe. And what will be the only things left? Us, the righteous, those of us who are in Christ, we've received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. When he shakes out all the stuff that needs to be removed, we'll remain. We'll remain. Oh, by the way, everything you see, it's getting shaken out. It's not going to be here. Go to Ezekiel chapter 11. I'm going to read to you just verses 1 through 13. Just kind of tie the beginning of this chapter and where we just ended up. Ezekiel chapter 11, look at verses 1 through 13. The Spirit lifted me up. Remember, he's still in that vision. The Spirit lifted me up and brought me to the east gate of the house of the Lord, which faces east. And behold, at the entrance of the gateway, there were 25 men. And I saw among them Jazaniah, the son of Azur. By the way, that's not the same Jazaniah that was son of Shaphan earlier. This is a different Jazaniah. And Pelatiah, don't miss that name. And Pelatiah, the son of Beniah, princes of the people. In other words, these are not the same 25 we saw earlier who were at the temple worshiping the sun. This is a different 25. They're at the gate of the city. These are the elders, if you will, the leaders of Israel that are left in the city of Jerusalem. They're princes of the people. And he said to me, son of man, these are the men who devise iniquity and who give wicked counsel in this city who say the time is not near to build houses. This city is the cauldron, and we are the meat. Therefore prophesy against them, prophesy, O son of man. And the Spirit of the Lord fell upon me, and he said to me, Say, thus says the Lord, so you think, O house of Israel. For I know the things that come into your mind. You have multiplied your slain in this city, and have filled its streets with the slain. Therefore thus says the Lord God, your slain whom you have laid in the midst of it, they are the meat, and this city is the cauldron." But you shall be brought out of the midst of it. You have feared the sword and will bring the sword upon you, declares the Lord. And I will bring the sword upon you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you out of the midst of it and give you into the hands of foreigners and execute judgments upon you. And you shall fall by the sword. I will judge you at the border of Israel and you shall know that I am the Lord. 
This city shall not be your cauldron, nor shall you be the meat in the midst of it. I will judge you at the border of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord, for you have not walked in my statutes, nor obeyed my rules, but have acted according to the rules of the nations that are around you. And it came to pass while I was prophesying that Pelatiah, the son of Benaiah, died. And then I fell down on my face and cried out with a loud voice and said, Ah, Lord God, will you make a full end of the remnant of Israel? These verses, as we move into chapter 11, have been a little confusing for some translators and commentators over the years. They seem confusing because of what the city's counselors are saying. The city's counselors are saying, now is not the time to build houses, and the city is the cauldron, and we're the meat. Now, you would think, since the city leaders don't think Babylon would be able to defeat them, they've been saying that all along to the prophets, Nebuchadnezzar's not going to win, we're going to be fine, they're telling everybody we're going to be fine. You would think that since the city leaders don't think Babylon would be able to defeat them, that they would be encouraging the people to go ahead and build. You'd think they'd be saying, hey, go ahead and build, you're going to be fine. But they're actually saying now's not the time to build. But because of this, some Bible translations... Even though the Hebrew is very clear and they're saying now is not the time to build, some Bible translations actually flip it and say that they're saying it's okay to build. Anybody here have a King James in front of them? The King James actually words it this way. They say the time is not near, let us build. In other words, judgment's not near, not near let us build. The NIV, so if you have an NIV in front of you, says will it not be soon time to build? So they flipped it. The New King James correctly translates this, the time is not near to build houses. So I'm going to ask you again, why would the bad leaders not be encouraging people to build? It's been confusing. And oh, and while we're at it, they also say the city is the cauldron and we're the meat. What in the world does that mean? Well, the cool thing is when you remember that God spoke through Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel to these people. And you realize that as God is prophesying through Ezekiel to them, he's dealing with their response to something Jeremiah said. And when you understand that the people of Jerusalem are responding to something Jeremiah has said, the passage unlocks. Go back with me to Jeremiah 29. In Jeremiah 29, look at verses 1 through 10. It says, These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and the priests. In other words, the ones who had been taken captive out in Babylon. The prophets and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs of the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, and whom Zedekiah, the king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Here's what the letter said. It said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for its welfare. You will, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream for it's a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. Jeremiah sent a letter to them saying, look, those of you that are in exile in Babylon, go ahead, build houses, plant crops, let your kids get married. You're going to be there a while. This judgment is going to happen and you're going to be in Babylon for at least 70 years. The leaders in Jerusalem were saying, now's not the time to build over there in exile. The city's the cauldron, and we're the meat. In other words, the fire hits the pot. 
It might get a little uncomfortable here inside, but we're the most treasured, treasured part, and the fire doesn't touch the meat. They're saying, look, we're going to be fine. As long as we stay inside the city, we're good. Don't tell them to go build houses. They're not going to be there very long. Now's not the time to build. Yes, yeah, some were taken into captivity, but they're not going to be there very long. Now's not the time to build houses. The city's the cauldron, and we're the meat. The fire may be out there, but it ain't going to touch us. Now go back to Ezekiel 11 and look at God's response, and you'll see exactly how clear this whole passage becomes now. I love verse 5. <clears throat> And the Spirit of the Lord fell upon me, and he said to me, Say, thus says the Lord. I love this. So you think. Says you, O house of Israel. For I know the things that come into your mind. You have multiplied your slain in the city and have filled the streets with the slain. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, your slain whom you have laid in the midst of it. In other words, the people you've killed because of your wickedness, they're the meat in the city of the cauldron. In other words, those are the ones that are going to be protected from what's to come. But you shall be brought out of the midst of it. You're going to be taken out of the city. And you, you have feared the sword, and I'll bring the sword upon you, declares the Lord. And I'll bring you out of the midst of it and give you into the hands of foreigners and execute judgments upon you. And you shall fall by the sword, and I'll judge you at the border of Israel. And you shall know that I'm the Lord. This city shall not be your cauldron, nor shall you be the meat in the midst of it. I'll judge you at the border of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord, for you have not walked in my statutes, nor obeyed my rules, but have acted according to the rules of the nations that are around you. Go to Jeremiah, sorry, not Jeremiah, 2 Kings, 2 Kings 25 real quick. Look at 2 Kings 25, verses 18 through 21, and look at what happened. And the captain of the guard took Sariah, the chief priest, and Zephaniah, then the second priest and the three keepers of the threshold and from the city he took an officer who had been in command of the men of war and five of the men of the king's council who were found in the city and the secretary of the commander of the army who mustered the people of the land and 60 men of the people of the land who were found in the city and Nebuzaradan the captain of the guard took them and brought them to the king of Babylon at Riblah and the king of Babylon struck them down and put them to death at Riblah in the land of Hamath. So Judah was taken into exile out of his land. Were they safe in the city? No, we already saw earlier tonight in the first part of the account that they ran for their lives out of the city. And as they ran toward the Arabah, the armies of Nebuchadnezzar came, captured them, killed them, killed Zedekiah's sons right in front of him, poked out his eyes, took him in captivity to Babylon. All the leaders of Israel, what happened to them? The ones who were saying, the city's the cauldron, we're the meat. Yeah, there's going to be fire out there, but it ain't going to touch us. God says, oh, it's going to touch you. I'm going to take you out of the midst of the city, and I'm going to put you to death there. And how did God prove, right at that moment that while Ezekiel was prophesying, how did God prove that what he said was true and not what they said was true? It's right there in the last part of our section of Ezekiel. One of the ones that was saying, we ain't going to be touched, Pelatiah dies right then. Now, this is an interesting thing and hard for us to grasp. Remember, Ezekiel's body is still in Babylon. He's taken in the spirit to see these things. So while he's prophesying, he's speaking out loud to the people in Babylon. Remember, he's sitting in his house with the elders of Judah around him. And while he sees what's going on in Jerusalem, he's prophesying to the people there. And while he's saying this, it's happening. And I promise you, word got back to the exiles about how Pelatiah died. And I bet you they did the math and said, Yep, that was at the exact moment that Ezekiel was saying what he said. We're going to close, though. we got one minute left. So listen fast. Go to Ezekiel 11. Look at verse 13. And it came to pass while I was prophesying that Pelatiah the son of Benaiah died. And I fell down on my face, and I laughed, and I said, I was right, you were wrong. Nanny, nanny, boo-boo. No, look, he fell down on his face, and he cried with a loud voice, and he said, Oh, Lord God, will you make a full end? of the remnant of Israel. Folks, in Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 23, God says, do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked and not that they repent and live? And then in verse 32, he answers his own question. He says, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord. 
Folks, we need to make sure that as we realize that a judgment is coming on the nations, and like I said, that same judgment that's coming on the nations is being used to God right now to affect us for the purposes of purification, to get us to the point that we're not as interested in the things of this world and more interested in what he's doing in our lives, to the point that this world will lose its taste and we become purified and more and more in love with the Lord Jesus as he reveals more and more of his holiness. And we grieve and we mourn for the sin that's in our lives. We thank God that we won't be held accountable for it, but at the same time, we lay aside the sin that so easily entangles and we run with perseverance the race marked out for us as he's doing that work don't lose sight of the fact that the heart of God is he's still hoping some of those people that are doomed for fire will repent so make sure that your heart is still saying Lord yes it's going to come on the nation but I pray at least some more individuals will escape it because even though Ezekiel was right he was grieved when he saw it happen I love you guys. We'll see you next week. Thanks for coming.